Insurance Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. This is the Internal Medicine Podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. This is Paul Williams, here by myself, um, plus or minus a couple of cats. I'm here to introduce an episode about primary care of the refugee patient. This is an episode we did as a live event at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center for their grand rounds, and we had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Tanuja Devaraj. Uh, as you'll hear in the recording, she got a just beautiful introduction from the, the staff there at, at Penn State. Um, but you don't get to hear it, so I'd like to repeat it. Uh, Dr. Devaraj is a general internist at Penn State Hershey Medical Center. She completed her residency at the Primary Care Social Internal Medicine Residency at Montefiore in New York. Her professional interests include refugee and immigrant health, medical education, and health advocacy. Her interest in refugee health began as a medical student in Philadelphia, uh, where she led a refugee health partnership working with Burmese and Bhutanese community in advocacy, education, and healthcare. She's continued to pursue her interest in migrant health in residency in the Bronx. She completed asylum evaluations, provided primary care for a large immigrant population, and did clinical training in Uganda. As an internist at Penn State, she works with the Bhutanese refugee population in the primary care setting and works on resident training in refugee health. She is um, a fantastic speaker on the topic, uh, an undoubted expert, and was just a pleasure to talk to. And so without wasting any more time, uh, I'm going to present our episode on primary care of the refugee patient. So I think we should bring our guest up, Paul. What do you think? I think that sounds great. So as, as we said up top, I'm not going to repeat the bio because the bio that was done was already outstanding. So let's please bring up Dr. Danusha Devaraj to talk to us about refugee health. You can applause again. That'd be nice. There you go. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We are, we're excited to talk to you. So before, uh, before we get to talking about the main topic, refugee health, we're going to ask you some, some easier questions, or maybe not easier questions. These actually seem to cause people more stress, um, but we're going to do it anyway. So can, can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and definitely include something outside of your job as a doctor? Uh, so one-liner, I'm a 32-year-old uh, woman. I'm also an identical twin. My twin is here in the family medicine department. Uh, grew up in India, have lived all over. I would say I have a passion for medicine, health equality, uh, people in general, cultures, and traveling. All right. That was great. Um, the, the question that brings probably the most anxiety that we often ask, so I'm going to ask you for a book recommendation. Fiction, nonfiction, doesn't have to be medically related, but something that, that doctors should read um, for whatever reason. Uh, so I was thinking about this last night, and I actually have two. Uh, one relevant for this topic and one in general that I found very helpful throughout medical school uh, and being a well-balanced physician. Um, so the first one is uh, Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. It's a, it's a guide to practicing mindfulness, uh, and it's also the guide for mindfulness-based stress reduction that we use for patients, uh, individuals who are coping with stress, chronic pain, and I think it's, it's helpful in being a mindful doctor and also having this as a tool for patients. Uh, the second one is a fictional book about a couple that is um, a refugee, supposedly from Syria, but they don't actually disclaim. It's called Exit West by Moshin Hamid. And I think it's, it gives you a very magical, fictional, but realistic view and storyline between what it means to be a refugee. Excellent. Oh, yes. Uh, 
What's your what's your favorite failure? Or it, it, this is not in the script, but I love this question, and I, and I know you didn't prepare for it at all, so it's perfect. Um, if you can recall your most memorable patient complaint, what you learned from that. So either a favorite failure or a patient complaint. I think we need to get your fa- your favorite patient complaint one of these days too. Uh, yeah, well, we're, we're going to Tunisia now, but. Um, I would, I mean, the, the failure is very easy to sure. remember because I, I don't think I'll ever forget it. And this was when I was at MS3, um, a medical student, uh, just starting my clinical rotations in internal medicine. And I had a, a very challenging and disheartening experience where a hospitalist said that I wasn't fit to be a doctor. And I will never forget that. And that was, um, yeah, a challenging experience. And luckily, it's not true. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think what I learned from that is it, what it means to be a mentor and a teacher. And I think I'll always remember that working with medical students and residents is the impact that we have uh, and remembering about constructive learning and positive feedback. And to be fair, that was the example of a bad mentor, right? <laughs> did they did they give you any constructive, did they even give any specific examples? Was it like at all meaningful feedback or was it just like, yeah, I, I don't think this is going to work out for you, full stop, no, n- like no embellishment? I think it was more of a personality or a cultural mismatch. Like I think she just didn't like the way I presented or the way I was on rounds and it was not her style of working and practicing and and I just started clinical rotations. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, and shout out to that person now as you give this your first grand round. So, <laughs> uh, before we move on, I would like to say so we're talking about your training. What is so far in your training and in your time as an attending? What's the best advice that you've received that you would like to to leave the audience with? Um, I would say two two things. Um, so we had a course in clinical reasoning at Montefiore, which I learned a lot from. And the, something I really took away from that and remember is uh, don't anchor when you're taking a history and forming a differential. Um, always be thorough, the, think about all the possibilities and keep thinking about the possibilities before anchoring. And I think it's, it's done a lot as we copy-paste in our EMR. P- patients get labeled with diagnoses that are not actually true, and I try to remember that. Yeah, something that Uncle Bob, uh, Bob Centaur said, I, like, I've, I think I've said this on multiple shows, but he said, we were talking about pneumonia, and he said when, when the emergency department tells him a patient has pneumonia, he assumes it's not correct, and then he tries to convince himself, you know, maybe if it is pneumonia, he tries to find evidence that it might be. So I think that's that's a good way to avoid the anchoring bias, especially with all the handoffs that there are nowadays in medicine. Um, should we do picks of the week? Yeah, absolutely. So for the audience, uh, if you've listened to our podcast, the picks of the week that on the pre-recorded uh, podcast episode is a little bit different than the way we do it on Grand Rounds. So Grand Rounds, I ask for a pick of the week from Paul and Matt, and they'll give me one. Um, and so, for example, the one that... Paul gave to me was Ad Astra, and so what I need, what my job is, is to match it with something eclectic to see if I know them very well. So <laughs> it's either Ad Astra or the 1998 film Lost in Space. Oh well, yeah, it's a real head scratcher. Um, yeah, <laughs> Lost in Space, which sank beneath the critical waves immediately because it was awful. So I think I'm going to stay with my pick of the week. Um, and we'll burn through, since I'd like to actually get to the meat of the talk. But if you like science fiction and you have a complicated relationship with your father um, at Astra, <laughs> and, and by the way, I was talking to my mom about this. If you like science fiction, by definition, you probably have a complicated relationship with your father. <laughs> so at Astra might be the movie for you. 
No comment. Okay. Um, and then Matt, he sent me uh, Snuff by Terry Pratchett. So you can either pick that one or this wonderful Lego set that I picked for no, re- no apparent reason whatsoever. Dude, I would go for Lego set. Uh, I, I will say, so I'll say a word about Terry Pratchett. The, the Terry Pratchett Discworld series is, it's like fantasy, mystery. Uh, it's also the main character, Sam Vimes. It becomes very more, he's a, he's a lovable curmudgeon. Maybe like someone sitting next to me uh, right now. Uh, self-described curmudgeon anyway. Uh, but I would I would highly recommend the Discworld series and the City Watch or Night's Watch series, which is that Snuff is part of. But I build Legos with my kids every day. That we have so many Legos. That's like a, a main activity in my house. So I will choose Legos. Excellent. Uh, I just want to point out that the whole reason why I picked it out is because Watto is uh, <laughs> included in the Lego set. So I, I have succeeded in, uh, in making you choose something that, that includes Watto. Okay, and then my pick of the week is. Uh, so uh, this doctor puppet, so I brought it to work actually uh, on uh, Thursday and had the residents present to the puppet. Um, it, it was the most, it was the strangest uh, rounds we've ever I, had. I see a meeting with human resources, <laughs> with human resources in your future. Uh, we should, we should start to move it. Yeah, to we should, because next one was a plague mask. We're just going to skip that one. <laughs> All right, Paul, why don't you start us off with a case from Cashlack? I, I would love to. This is what we're all here for. So let's, let's talk about the case of a 35-year-old woman from Mali. She presents to your clinic, uh, which is a primary care clinic, initially with a concern of loss of appetite. She's here for a primary care, She's obtained, and your job is to obtain a migrant history. And this revealed that she is an undocumented immigrant. She has fled her country from persecution, is trying to seek asylee status. And so I think while we're waiting for our translator to show up and while we're trying to sort of wrap our heads around all that means, I think it's probably helpful to start even just with some basic definitions. So if you could even just help us differentiate um, what is the difference between a refugee versus uh, an asylee versus an asylee seeker versus a migrant, if you could help us with that to start. Uh, Sure. So uh, a refugee is anyone who has uh, fled their country uh, due to persecution or war or violence. Uh, Once they have fled to a neighboring country, they are granted refugee status by the UNHCR or by the host country, and they're protected legally to have basic rights to shelter, education, and health care. It's a temporary settlement until they get assimilated or resettled into the host country or a third country, commonly the U.S., yeah. And an asylee is someone who is also fleeing the country for fear of persecution, but that hasn't been granted that sanction uh, or protection yet. And they are in their host country going through a prolonged legal process trying to obtain refugee status or a permanent resident status. A migrant is someone like myself uh, or anyone who migrates to a foreign country in order for educational or economic or family uh, opportunities. Paul, I'll let you have crack at where do you where do you want to go from here with this? So let's let's start with the with the population that you have some familiarity with, and, and obviously this is a big question, and we can sort of get to more granular details as we go through cases. Um, but you're, our patients from Mali, but you you have specific familiarity with the, the Bhutanese population. So I wonder if you would mind just giving us a little bit of background about them before we kind of get into the meat of the case. Yeah, all of us here have probably met um, our Nepali-speaking Bhutanese population. Often they introduce themselves as Nepali. But they're, they're actually a refugee population, and there's a large uh, community of them in the Harrisburg area. I worked with this population in Philadelphia when I was in medical school, and a lot of them have migrated to, uh, you know, to Hershey or to other areas, again, for community reasons or for job reasons. Uh, and they're uh, a refugee population from Bhutan. They moved to 
Bhutan in the 1600s. They're predominantly Hindu. They've lived there for many, many years, but in the 1990s, um, as part of a nationalistic and ethnic conflict and cleansing in Bhutan, they were forced to, to leave Bhutan. Uh, their rights to citizenship were taken away, and so they lived in Nepal in refugee camps. So most of our patients, uh, the, the wait to get in or come to the U.S., uh, which I think the U.S. started accepting refugees from Bhutan in 2005, have been in those camps for 10, 15, 20 years. The younger generation, typically born in the refugee camps, um, and they come to larger cities like Philadelphia uh, to resettle and then often migrate depending on where opportunity lies. And so Pennsylvania actually has the largest Bhutanese refugee population. We have around 9,000. And the U.S. till now has uh, resettled 90,000 from Bhutan. Bhutan. Yeah, we, we, we were actually talking a lot about Bhutan and uh, the whole situation last night. And one of the things that I brought up to Matt that uh, Bhutan is actually the only country in the world that has a ministry of happiness. And the, whole, the only reason why I bring this up is not to be funny or anything, but even in a country that's labeled as having one of the highest standards of living for their citizens, there are still um, uh, segments of the population that are either disenfranchised from um, being involved with, with that government or are otherwise um, uh, disadvantage in some way, shape, or form. This is what happened with the uh, with the Nepalese speaking Bhutanese um, in the 90s and early 2000s. So just bear that in mind that oftentimes what you hear in media may not reflect the actual situation on the ground, and we should always kind of question what we're told when uh, when something like this ca- this happens. And so just uh, think about it. and that's actually the the current king of Bhutan. I can't pronounce his name because it's like very very long, but. That's him and his wife right right there. Well, with that said, Tanuja, we are going to be getting into what, as a primary care doc, what would be our roles when we're meeting patients who are refugees. I think we it's worth touching on what happens before somebody comes to the U.S. Um, what what basic things, in broad strokes, is what what basic medical care or medical screenings are done? Because I think everyone just kind of probably thinks, okay, you should check patients for tuberculosis. Um, it, how is that? Is that like a major concern when people are migrating? Or I'm probably using the wrong terms, but forgive me. That's fine. Um, no, you did fine. <laughs> um, so, yeah, again, like I said, it's a really long process to be accepted as um, a refugee to resettle in, in a host country or, or third country. And um, six months prior to them migrating to a country, there's a visa medical examination, and there's um, like clinics or doctors that have uh, official guidelines on what they need to examine for. And it's the initial checkpoint or exam is a very like broad um, generalized exam, making sure that there's no active TB or like schizophrenia or like obvious and glaring illnesses that prevent someone from uh, successfully migrating and also to, to protect like uh, the population from transmitting infectious disease. So it's a very general physical and mental exam. They don't screen for latent TB or chronic diseases or uh, anything like that. It's just looking for if they have obvious illnesses at that point. What exactly happens to them if they have these illnesses? Um, so most patients are, uh, not patients, or individuals at that point, are eligible for treatment um, and 
following their treatment with the DOT and then rechecking them several months later and seeing if they have been cleared and are still uh, accepted to the um, host country. It's very rare that someone gets uh, rejected based on their health condition. And at this point, they're they're living in a refugee camp and the host country is kind of helping them through the paperwork to see if they're going to be given refugee status. Is, am I understanding that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I think we want to spend most of our time talking about when you're actually seeing patients in the primary care office. What, what would a first visit look like? Um, so depends on what context you're seeing the patient. So once they arrive, they, uh, the CDC has guidelines for an initial domestic medical examination. And if you are, uh, I think Jefferson, where I went to medical school, was one of the clinics doing those initial domestic um, medical examinations. And then a lot of them are just Department of Health clinics or physicians who have partnered, and this is what they do. Um, and that's very different from the setting that we see patients in, which it's not the initial uh, exam or the initial checkpoint, but people who have resettled for a couple years um, often lost a care after this initial checkpoint and coming to you for just routine primary care. So at this, um, the CDC has a nice guideline on their website about what the initial checkpoint includes. And this is, um, again, more targeted at like pr- making sure that we uh, protect public health uh, and transmission of infectious diseases. So it's looking for uh, latent TB or active TB. Uh, HIV is no longer recommended pre-departure, but it is recommended post-arrival. Hepatitis B, um, syphilis, and then for chlamydia gonorrhea for high risk. And then you can consider uh, a CBC, a BMP with glucose to look for chronic illness or diseases, um, and then updating their vaccinations as well. So that's that's the major coverage at the initial exam. And so this is, just so I'm understanding, this is the initial domestic exam before they're still seen in your primary care office. Is that, is that correct? So it, can you take on face value that all that stuff's going to be done? I guess when you're, when you're meeting the patient, what can you assume 100% for sure is done and what things do you have to sort of reinvent? Because my understanding is there's some variability among the initial domestic examination. Yeah, so I think I, these are guidelines and recommendations and they're not always consistently implemented. Um, and they should have a record of what's been done, but I almost never get the records from patients and it's really hard to know what has been done. So I I keep in mind what's recommended and I actually uh, repeat, and most providers do who do primary care for this population will try to get records and what they can't uh, confirm will repeat a lot of these um, tests or uh, initial preventive screenings. Paul and I were talking about this uh, yesterday I thought it was interesting with from vaccination specifically, <clears throat> this is just like something that I thought was very practical knowledge. They're like, for most of the vaccinations, if there's any question, just repeat them. Specifically, hepatitis B and varicella, they're like, check titers before you just like revaccinate with those. So uh, I guess, is, I'm not sure if you're doing that in your practice, but that was, I thought that was insanely practical to know that. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I I would agree with that. Like Tdap and MMR for adults, most patients have received those prior to departure just because of uh, the programs uh, and healthcare opportunities in their refugee camps. But hepatitis B is not often given, varicella is not often given, Um, pneumovaxes, flu shots are, yeah. Who's who's providing the healthcare in these refugee camps? Um, so a lot of times they're like UN aid organizations uh, providing health care. Um, the host country itself, you know, they 
try to provide education and basic health care as well. So it's a combination. Yeah. When you say host country, I want to make sure I'm understanding. So let's say um, it, when I was in residency, I had some friends from Syria and there was some some of their family members were in like Jordan in camps. But then is that considered the host company country or is the host country whatever country they're trying to get into uh, for per- more permanent settlement or is it? They might have multiple host I countries. I think it's, it's multiple. So the okay. so Jordan may is their initial host country because they're essentially providing them uh, a safe um, sanctuary from the 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 war or violence that they're fleeing from. Um, and then because like for Nepal example, it's a poor country itself, so it's not able to assimilate uh, these individuals. So then they're looking for a third country to migrate to. Yeah. So you mentioned, I mean, this is primary care just in general, but in terms of not being able to get a patient's prior medical records like that, just feel, I don't think I've ever seen them ever. They're, they're my white whale. Um, <clears throat> but, but I feel like that's a reasonable segue to talk about um, other barriers that you sort of, you might run into this initial encounter and just in general in terms of taking care of this patient population. So I feel like language is probably an obvious one and the records are one, but what, what, other, what other things should you be mindful of during sort of your first visit as you, as you take care of these patients? Yeah, like you said, uh, the social economic determinants are, are kind of obvious ones, like language, culture, um, access to insurance, um, and navigating the healthcare system. But I think good particular examples is um, often when after their do- initial domestic e- examination, they have uh, welfare or health coverage for eight months as part of their resettlement into the U.S. And after that, there's a, a huge period where people become uninsured um, or don't know how to apply for Medicaid or how to get insurance. And so there's a lot of fragmented and interrupted care in the initial arrival and by the time you see the patient. So the first encounter is usually that they have um, really uncontrolled chronic medical conditions or have been out of care for a long time. Um, And so that's, I think, your first barrier is keeping that in mind. They might come to you with eight different complaints and that's that's how the typical presentation is. Um, and the other, other common barriers, people don't have a concept of primary care and continuity care because that's not something that they had access to in refugee camps. So their, their health belief is you go to the doctor when you're sick or when you have a, a physical complaint or a problem. So I think being aware of that, they may not understand that you want to see them every three months for their diabetes or they need to take the medication daily for a chronic illness and keeping that in mind and doing a lot of education um, and teach back when you first uh, meet these patients. Speaking of communication, uh, the, all the papers that you had sent us mentioned how important it is to use official interpreters, not to use family members as interpreters. And uh, I know it's always more, con- it's like convenient to use and very tempting to use family members as interpreters, but especially uh, the, the all the papers were suggesting definitely use official interpreters. And even when you do that, there's certain understandings of disease of diseases like high blood pressure. My high, my blood pressure is only high when I exercise or my blood pressure is only high when I'm in pain. It, it, what maybe and maybe you can give an example from the Bhutanese population. Are there any chronic diseases that we commonly treat that where there's like a barrier where the the way that they think about the disease is different than how Western medicine would think about it? And um, yeah, and I don't know if there's a, a like a one particular example of the or this is the belief of hypertension, but 
I think every individual is a little different and they have their own interpretation. I had a patient the other day that she was having a chronic cough, so I stopped her ACE inhibitor and she didn't actually have high blood pressure. And I said, let's, you know, see you the next visit. And then she said, well, I said, did you stop it? And she's like, I did for some time, but my neck started hurting. And I think that was related to my blood pressure. So I restarted the lisinopril and then her cough got worse. And so it's, <laughs> and so it's just telling her, no, well, this is what blood pressure means. And I don't think it's related to your neck pain. They may not believe you, but trying to find a common ground to say, let's try this again. Let's stop the lisinopril. I think in, in reading this, uh, reading about this, it's not, not an area of health that I really have any, I've, I have really practiced minimally and I hadn't thought about it, but I think it just gave some good practical tips just in any of our patients, probably just asking them like, what's your understanding of like what diabetes means or what high blood pressure means. And, you know, their understanding of the need to take a blood pressure medication every day is, it's probably good to assess because it seems like that's where a lot of these things trip up. Like a lot of just the practical aspects of things, um, especially particularly with refugee health kind of model, some of the things we see with patients who are born in this country. Yeah, I think it's not that who cares what I think, cause I'm not the expert here, but uh, <laughs> in terms of like, I, I think, well, as we'll discuss moving forward, it sounds like the therapeutic relationships can be really important in terms of, I mean, in any patient relationship, particularly with this patient population in terms of establishing trust and sort of treating not just the chronic diseases, but maybe even some of the, the past traumas. And I, before we get there though, um, I just didn't want to miss a chance to talk about the migration history, which is an element of the social history that I have virtually no experience with. So I, I wonder, I just don't want to lose that thread um, while we're still sort of meeting this patient for the first time. So if you wouldn't mind just telling me how to approach a migration history and, and how you might even sort of prepare for it before talking to the patient. Uh, yeah, so a lot of times you may not be able to prepare for it, just as an example of, of this patient who you don't know that, you know, they're, you don't know that they're seeking asylum status, they're just coming you for, to you for routine primary care. But as in our situation, like, we are familiar with this population and just knowing a little bit of their background, culturally, religious um, background, and the politically what they've been through and their experience in the refugee camps, I think helps you prepare for understanding what you're walking into and... Um, there's multiple resources through the CDC. The UNHCR has a lot of information about uh, refugee camps and their challenges in those camps and the health challenges that they face as well. So I think just knowing who you're getting to know is important. Uh, and then I guess the next part of it is taking a migration history. Um, so I think this is the key component of your social history and it's you can weave it into your social history when you're getting to know a patient and it's just starting very broadly and open-ended asking about where uh, the patient was born uh, and if you know that they're a refugee what year did they migrate to the refugee camps how long did they live in the refugee camps what was life like and what was their access to to education or to to food security to health care just to kind of understand what went on in their life there for a lot of people that's again 10 20 years um, and then i always ask about migration to to the u.s or where you're interviewing them a lot of times you get separated from families uh, and that will give you insight into family structure and who's in the household um, and a lot of time there's economical and physical and emotional strain in the migration process as well if it's not a peaceful or easy migration um, and then i think you the next phase you ask about is their settlement process to see 
how how is it going living in the U.S.? Do you feel well adjusted? Uh, what are some of the things that are hard? What are the, some some of the things that you're enjoying or you like being here um, and getting that part of it? And then the the tricky part I think it weaves into is the past medical history. When you ask someone what medical problems they have, they may say, "Oh, nothing. I, I was fine." And the answer is is not what you're looking for. And so asking it in a different way, were you taking any medications before? Uh, when was the last time you saw a doctor? Um, did you have any surgeries? And weaving into those different parts of the history in that direction. So from a practical standpoint, uh, during this process, during the resettlement process, as in the United States, who covers the cost of medications, health care, et cetera? So do they have access to medications, and um, do they have to pay for it? Like, where does it come from? The, during the initial process, do you mean? Yeah. yeah. So during the initial process, screening, oh, you've got diabetes, let's start you on something. Who covers that? So they have, um, I mean, it's, it's like Medicaid. They have uh, medical assistance for the first eight months as part of their resettlement process. So that's through the government. That's yeah. uh, through federal government, not yeah. through state? through federal government. And then after that, they would have to apply for medical assistance, which might be very complicated for someone who's not a native speaker and doesn't have great resources at their disposal. Yes, exactly. That was um, some of the, the advocacy work that we did as medical students in Philly was um, having, I mean, after the ACA, there were more and more opportunities for having access to insurance. And then after Pennsylvania passed the Medicaid expansion, there, that also made things easier. So we were just in the community setting up um, just workshops to help people fill out these applications and get insurance because, yeah, a lot of people are, aren't insured. And depending on the state you're in, you may not be able to get that insurance. So some states don't even allow them to apply for Medicaid if they're not like a citizen or something? Or No, they're, they're eligible to apply for Medicaid because they, they now usually have a permanent resident or green card status okay. and they're in their process of getting citizenship. Um, but it, this is the same for any underserved population. If Medicaid expansion hasn't uh, been applied, then there's a very small percentage of people who are eligible for Medicaid. Yeah. So let's let's return to our patient. Um, so we're, and to recall, because <laughs> we went a long way. So this is a our, our, a 35 year old patient from Mali who's who's reporting a loss of appetite. And so with some exploration, it sounds like maybe this is possibly due to patients underlying depression. Maybe there's some post-traumatic stress from a traumatic migration process and the loss of her children. And so as you uncover and explore all this, I, I wonder if you would mind talking broadly about how commonly you see mental health issues among refugees and, and sort of what are the more common mental health disorders that you uncover as you're doing this kind of exploration. Yeah, I think mental health is, is one of the most uh, common chronic medical problems that you will see in, the, in your clinic setting. Um, and that includes anxiety, adjustment disorder, depression, and PTSD. Um, there's different studies out there in the literature, and some say that the rates of PTSD in this population is as high as 30%, uh, and depression is also as high as 30%, and the rates of suicide is, is twice that of a U.S.-born individual. Um, so it's there is a huge mental health impact due to their history of um, losing their nationality, from their you know country of origin and their country of birth, process of migration is itself a very stressful and traumatic experience. Um, and then just waiting in a limbo period until they come to to another country, and then assimilating here, especially in our older population. If you've met anyone like over forty or fifty, who careful, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's easy with the older population. Well. <laughs> 
Um, but older, or older for our refugee population, I mean, <laughs> because they're you, what you you'll see the younger population are well assimilated because they you know take ESL, they learn English, and they're uh, can work and have kids and are have a reason and purpose to be assimilated into our culture. But the older population who have lived in a very rural setting, uh, especially the, the Bhutanese population, who don't know how to read and write in their own language. Um, find it very, very hard to adjust to, to this, yeah, environment. I think I, I went on a tangent. I'm not sure what we no, were that was, that was That was for, I see, and I, I'm glad that you sort of you talked to the, the Bhutanese um, patient population. Are there any barriers that are unique to the treatment of these underlying disorders with, with, with refugee populations or the Bhutanese? Uh, you know, I know that access to sort of mental health services just in general in this country is kind of a nightmare. So for this population, are there any additional barriers? Yeah, um, I think uh, for any individual who's non for, not from a, a Western culture, the definition of uh, depression and anxiety or the terminology may not even exist. Um, and so uh, the expression of these mental health um, concerns is, is not your typical presentation. Your patient's not saying, you know, I feel sad, I feel low, I'm not able to, to get to work or I'm not able to get to these things. Um, the, the presentation is usually uh, somatic symptoms of headache or fatigue or uh, abdominal pain, uh, insomnia. I think maybe we can read the, the next case and, and kind of expand this discussion a little bit more. Um, so the other case that we had was a 40-year-old woman with a history of diabetes, high blood pressure, chronic pain. She's coming for establishing primary care. She's a Bhutanese refugee. She's been here for five years, recently relocated from Virginia because uh, the public health assistance coverage was not was not great there. She's got high blood sugar, high blood pressure and hasn't been on any medications in the past month uh, transitioning to Pennsylvania. She's got chronic pain all over her back and all through her legs. And when when reading this case, it, again, I was trying to make parallels between patients that I've cared for just kind of in primary care and and the refugee population. I There was a woman I was caring for um, for several years uh, for chronic pain, and after knowing her for three years, seeing her once once a month or once every three months, like very frequently um, for just always, there was always somatic complaints. She One day she just started telling me that her, her husband uh, used, to, used to beat her. He died young. She had a child that died. And she just started just telling me all these things that just sort of like, you know, just sort of tied... I, I suspected we're driving some of the somatic complaints, these just very like major past traumas that she had been through. Um, have you have you noticed that in the refugee population, this sort of thing is something that people are telling you about? And do they have any insight into that? These things may be related to their symptoms, or is it just something that you you sort of have to guide them towards understanding, which is probably very hard to do? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's common that patients connect uh, their physical complaints to to a history of trauma or torture um, or just to the stress of assimilation and migration and that I think that's true for you know any of our um, patients with a history of trauma wherever they're born or wherever they're from I think it's good to their people are more comfortable with their physical complaints. And I think as primary care physicians, you you do a thorough workup and you validate their physical complaints and you try to treat them as chronic pain and uh, treat the, the physical complaints. And then over 
time in overbuilding a relationship, uh, you work with the patient to explore uh, their prior stressors and trauma and their current stressors and to see if we can make that connection. But I think the most therapeutic thing is, is validating and building that relationship. And um, yeah, Are you using any specific screening tools to, when you're talking to patients, particularly about PTSD or or when you're trying to elicit a history about trauma or torture, or do you just sort of use your own use your own questions? I know so, there are some tools, but I have no experience using them. Yeah, the the tools that are available um, is the Harvard Trauma Questionnaire and the Hopkins uh, Symptom Checklist, which I haven't used, uh, but it's it's validated in different cultures and different languages uh, for a refugee population. You have to purchase them; uh, they're not always easily available. There, um, so you can use the, I use the PCL-5, which was uh, developed for veterans, and it's a guide to the PTSD diagnosis as per the DSM-5, which I think is a pretty good tool. And I also use the, the GAD-7 and the PHQ-9, um, but just modifying the questions and doing the questions a little bit with the patient uh, to to get that information. Yeah, there, there's also a one-question abbreviated uh, PTSD screener from the, PC, the PCL-5 that you can use, but I don't know if it's validated in refugee populations. It is in veterans. Yeah. This, this might be the place for this, and it's, it's probably an uncomfortable discussion a little bit. And, I you know, we talked sort of before this uh, so rather than me dancing circles around it, in terms of eliciting a history of past trauma or, or even potentially torture, which is certainly a concern in patient populations and uh, refugee populations, is there, I'd like to hear sort of what the general recommendations are, but then I think more importantly, your specific approach and how, how you address that um, kind of, if at all. Um, again, the general recommendation is that all refugees are recommended to be screened for trauma. Um, and the CDC has a simple like two question um, steps that you can do. And one is, have you ever experienced violence or trauma in the former country that you resided in? If you did, would you like to talk about it and leaving it open-ended? Um, and I think Jama had a good article about questions that you can ask about trauma or witnessing trauma uh, or torture. In, in practice, um, again, if you're not your initial physician or you're not at their initial checkpoint, this may feel out of context when you're seeing a patient in clinic uh, for the first time they're coming to you with headache, back pain, A1C of 11. Uh, They haven't had insurance or medications for a while. And so that's their agenda. So understanding what their priority is and your priority in the first few visits is establishing care, building that relationship and then I think uh, in practice, if you, you should be screening for anxiety and depression and uh, mental health, as we do for our, all of our primary care patients. And, and if there are signs of anxiety or depression or signs of PTSD with nightmares uh, or hypervigilance and, and you're managing these uh, mental illnesses, then um, eventually asking them about prior trauma and prior stress that they've experienced, I think, is very valid and very um, helpful in caring for these patients. Well, we are gonna, we're going to leave some time for questions from the audience, and Stuart will come out and do a little bit of crowd work here. I did want to just try to recap a little bit, <clears throat> and maybe we can use our second case to do that. So this was a 40-year-old woman that we were seeing. She's coming with, she had high, high blood glucose and hypertension. So, of course, we're going to want to address that. We're going to want to address her pain complaints. And 
help me out just recapping the initial labs that we were going to do, maybe like a CBC, BMP, and um, and then we were going to make sure her vaccines are up to date, check a varicella and uh, hepatitis B titer if we're unsure about those ones. Apparently, they're very expensive to just give. And then uh, are we giving her albendazole? Uh, I, we didn't talk about that, but that's something <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm that's dying true. to give a patient albendazole. I have not had the occasion. <laughs> um, so most refugees should be empirically treated prior to their migration to the U.S. And uh, I don't empirically treat for uh, helminths or uh, schistosomas or strongolites. Uh, and we have our ID expert in the audience. But uh, so it's, it, I do test. You do a stool test for ONP. Um, and for um, schisto, only if they're in, uh, in an endemic area uh, where they have frequent contact with like water-rich um, areas. And then Strongy, you, you do the uh, serologic testing as well if they come from an endemic yeah. area. Yeah. My favorite, uh, what was terrifying about that one, they were just like, oh yeah, a lot of the worms will just like die off once they're out of the native population and stop getting like the life cycle. But strongoloides can just like, yeah. it's all in one. It's yeah. all in the same person, so they that will not go away if they have it. So you have yeah, I think serology is much more sensitive than the stool. Than test. stool and strongolites is is important. Or the reason we fear it is if patients become immune compromised and they have a chronic infection, uh, the hyperinfection uh, syndrome can be very uh, with the high mortality. Okay, and I think the only other thing we would be doing STI testing, uh, testing for sexually transmitted infection, make sure they don't have like super gonorrhea or something like that. Uh, the special super gonorrhea. The super gonorrhea, yeah. 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 Uh, and then uh, anything else I'm missing for that, that exam before we go for audience questions, just kind of recap like what we'd be doing at that first primary care visit or at least the first few primary care visits? I think that's everything. The two things that I will emphasize that I think that's unique for refugee populations and especially our Bhutanese population is um, – is the chronic illnesses present differently and often present at a younger age. It's not uncommon to see a 35-year-old thin woman with raging diabetes or uncontrolled hypertension. So it's a little different from our population and what the USPTF recommends. So I would definitely check an A1C and a lipid profile for younger refugee populations. And I think there's hepatitis B and hepatitis C, less so for our Bhutanese population, but um, populations from sub-Saharan Africa or the Hmong population in Thailand or the Burmese population, the rates of hepatitis B and C, very high. And this is your chance to prevent um, HCC. So always, always screen and uh, link to care. And with these, these chronic diseases that you're seeing, so it's, I think we've used raging as a descriptor a couple of times for the diabetes. Is that an acute recognition of a chronic problem or how much of that is a component of sort of westernization so like and and i guess along with those like you know they come here and then just eat the garbage that that is available so i guess what is the role of anticipatory guidance also in terms of sort of is it does it differ at all from general primary care with refugees in terms of how you counsel about how to eat and what to eat that was a lot of questions stacked together yeah yeah i would say so i think uh there's definitely after they move here they're at increased risk for obtaining or like assimilating to hypertension diabetes but it's it's actually um in the the trend globally due to like globalization and rapid urbanization uh, the rates of chronic diseases in their native countries are very very high so depending iraq is an example uh, very high rates of diabetes and hypertension south asia um and even sub-saharan africa when i was in uganda you you know you're seeing AIDS, and then you're also seeing uncontrolled diabetes. So I think this double burden of disease and rise in non-communicable diseases in the, in the global setting is, is a true and real thing.
that that question just reminded me of one of the cases in one of the papers uh, mentioned that there was a patient with uncontrolled diabetes, and the fix was that she had been through starvation, and they just she so she was not they just had to kind of guide her towards better foods, and just she did, she wasn't willing to cut down on portions because it was a whole thing of having been through starvation. She just you know, that, that was a, something that probably would have never occurred to me to even think about, um, when I was trying to counsel somebody. Um, so something else to think about, should we, should we take audience questions, Paul, or do do we have, Stuart, you want to, so if anybody would like to ask questions, either you can yell them out or you can come, uh, down to the bottom of the steps here. Uh, also we are happy to end early and just, uh, hang out if that's, if there's no specific questions. Or Stuart can do a couple minutes of stand-up, which... Uh... Please don't let that happen. I beg of you. Let somebody ask a question. One of the things that I'm noticing when I have uh, refugee population patients, they come in as families. Uh, they'll be not just one patient, but actually several people, that all with different complaints. And they'll often schedule all at the same time. I guess in terms of management, especially when we talk about trauma, is there anything that we can do to kind of make it so that uh, these patients, we can hear each of them in the same Yeah, I think that is a common experience, what you're describing, um, especially because health navigation for the older refugee population is hard, so they're there with their kids or a neighbor who's the one who speaks English or who can drive their car. Um, and so I think initially it's you might feel some resistance in asking family members to leave the room or using uh, an interpreter, but if you explain that this is something that we do confidentiality is like part of our routine healthcare here. We do it with all our patients. You you will get buy-in, and I think over time you you will be able to establish that individual relationship with your patient. And I think that's important to to talk to the patient directly without family members being there. Yeah. Any other questions? Are there are there any other resources that you use to prepare? You know, and, and obviously you're familiar with the. the Nepalese population, Bhutanese. But are there other resources that you use to prepare when you know somebody's coming in from refugee from another country or home country you may not be familiar with? Yeah, there's there's multiple resources. The so the the UN uh, refugee organization of the UNHCR um, has important information about the the number of refugees, the the life in refugee camps, uh, the health issues. The CDC has a nice country profile for each uh, refugee population. Um, I also use the WHO and the Lancet in understanding epidemiology and uh, global burden of disease. There's a good Lancet tool that gives you a little like pictogram of what the most prevalent conditions are and what's um, the highest burden of uh, disease in that population. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can we can end a little bit early uh, unless anyone else has any burning questions and uh, maybe we should do an outro. All right. Yeah, sure. For form's sake. So this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, giving you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Uh, yummy. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> Glad to see you so directly engaged in front of the audience. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with practice changing high value knowledge. And I just flipped that. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact uh, Matt directly at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram. I still don't even know what that is. And Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham.
And I would like to thank Stuart for composing our music and Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing our audio. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Oh. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on Curbsiders. I listen to you guys often. And uh, until, I guess, maybe next time, <laughs> yeah. I've been uh, Dr. Tanuja Devaraj. Uh, strong work. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you. Okay, and wait, 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 we have a pun. Oh, God. Yeah, so you can just applaud. We don't need this. Yeah, yeah, not, not, not yet. So uh, what does this keyboard and Paul have in common right now? Yeah, there's no escape. <laughs> oh, great stuff. <laughs> now you can take it.